Right, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon us. Our dear, our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day that you've granted us to see, to come together around the teaching of your word, the word about Christ Jesus, about our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, the word about eternal life and our standing before God as holy and righteous without blame because of the Christ who died and resurrected and is seated. Lord, I pray for all your people, wherever they are in this world, we pray for all your people who are dealing with all kinds of issues, spiritual, physical, health problems, fear, doubt, financial, all kinds of issues, Lord. We pray that you sustain them in Christ. We pray for our family here also. Lord, we need your grace, even us in all things. I pray now that you speak to your people, speak through me, teach me, and also teach your people what the truth is with regards to Christ. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Exodus 12. And good morning to one and all. Good to see you. <laughs> I pray that you are hearing me clear, loud and clear. Exodus 12, we are again this morning, Exodus 12, from verse 14 to 39. Because I have to cover a lot of text, I won't be reading through the text like I typically do to read the whole text before I start talking. I'll read the verses as I proceed with the message. I was going to be greedy and try and go through the rest of the chapter today, but it did not happen. So we're going to still have another message from Exodus 12. The Lord opened more understanding of the chapter. So I pray that he will bless you. So Exodus 14 Exodus 12, verse 14, God says to Israel through Moses, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. We have one title to our message and it is, you shall not eat unleavened bread. You shall not eat unleavened bread. Or, I said one title, but there are many related titles that have to deal with the leaven. No leaven in your house. <laughs> no leaven in your house. The time for the deliverance of the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt has come. And God does not and will not deliver them apart from 
Christ apart from the gospel. Thus, three very important ideas of salvation are introduced to us. And two of them were represented by the feast. And feast in Hebrew means an appointed time because all of God's works are appointed. Your birth was appointed by God. Where you are in your life is appointed by God. The circumstances of our lives are all appointed by God. God is he who has written the story of our life. And we are just going through the steps that he has ordained for us. But especially in the matter of salvation, we are told in Galatians 4 verse 4 about Christ. And Paul says, but when the fullness of the time had come, when the fullness of God's time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So see that there's no matter of redemption or salvation that does not relate to law and sin. So if Christ came to redeem those under the law, it implies they were under the slavery of sin under the law because sin and law always work together to produce slavery. And that means Israel in Egypt was under the slavery of law and sin even though it is not explicitly said God preaches it by the situation that they found themselves in. But remember this. Egypt is where Hagar, the servant of Abraham and Sarah, came from. And when you find yourself under the place or in the place of the birth of Hagar and her people, you find yourself in slavery. Because we know from Galatians chapter 4 that Hagar was a picture of the law, the bond woman. So Egypt is a picture of the law also because of Hagar. That's where she came from. So appointed times were preparing us for the fullness of God's appointed time to bring salvation. If you go to Leviticus 23, you're going to find a list of God's appointed times, the feasts, the feasts of the first fruits, tabernacles, unleavened bread, the Passover, all those feasts were appointed times and they all related in one way or another to the Lord Jesus and what he was to accomplish. So by this feast, God was going or was telling us what it takes to set a sinner free his method of doing salvation. God has his way of saving sinners. And this is not 
anything or something that men and women know naturally or are able to do. Salvation is something that has to be revealed to us by God himself. Because only God knows the way of salvation. Thus, sin cannot be overcome by anything that we do. It cannot be overcome by a New Year's resolution to do better. Like it is some weight loss program. You can't just change your diet add more veggies and some exercise regimen and boom, sin is gone. It does not work like that. If that were the case, then I think things will be much easier for us. But sin is described by God as a mighty power which is impossible to dethrone apart from Christ himself. And that is why God taught the matter by way of slavery. Because if you're under slavery, it means you're under a master, you're under the control and power and dominion of another and you can't escape. Okay, so that's the purpose that God is teaching us through Israel in Egypt. Okay, and as I said, we know from the New Testament teaching 1 Corinthians 15 that the power of sin is in the law. So when sin and law are put together, they produce enslavement, which results in death, which is condemnation. This relationship is not taught very well in the majority of churches. That's why people say, oh, we are doing the law, but the Bible says, when sin and law come together, they produce death, they produce condemnation in the sinner. That's the relationship. Life is only found when you come under Christ. In Christ alone is where you find life because in Christ all your sins are forgiven. In Christ, God blesses you with everything that God has blessed his people with. So that distinction is very important to know and understand. So God has sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to tell him to let the people go. But Pharaoh did not let the people go because God prevented him from letting the people go. The text says God hadn't Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go because sinners are not set free by just a command or a decree. Sinners are not set free by just a command by God. There's need of payment. There's need of satisfaction that has to happen so that God will set them free on just grounds because all sin that we have committed has been committed against God. Even if you sin against another person, Ultimately, all those sins have been committed against God himself because God is the one who is holy and righteous. So, God ultimately is he who brings under slavery. It is he who puts us under the judgment until the ransom payment has been made. A payment 
that satisfies his justice and wrath. And that's Pharaoh. As we have been learning, is a picture or was a picture of God himself who works his decrees through the taskmasters. Pharaoh had his taskmasters who were over the children of Israel. And those taskmasters were working the decrees to enslave God's people. But remember in typology, in typology, basically, when we talk about typology, we are talking about the gospel pictures that are found in the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, people, Abraham, David, Joseph, just for example, those were pictures of Christ. They were types of Christ. Something about them was telling us about the person and life of Christ. So, in Egypt, we also have typology. God is preaching the gospel in pictures. That's where typology, that's what typology means. God preaching the gospel in pictures before Christ himself had come. So when you're dealing with typology, the picture is inferior to its fulfillment. The type is always inferior to the anti-type. The picture is David. David was a type of Christ but David was a sinner. Christ is the fulfillment of David, and Christ was righteous. So that's how they connect. So they are never one-to-one, even though, say, Solomon is a picture of Christ, but Solomon had a lot of issues. (laughs) But still, God gave the picture of Solomon so that when we read Solomon, we are supposed to understand something about Jesus before Jesus came. Okay? So, Be mindful of that in your reading and hearing, especially from the Old Testament. But you can't ignore the truth that is embedded in the shadow just because God is using an offensive character. It is God's way of keeping the offense in Christ. God purposefully was doing these things to offend people. So you have Rahab, the prostitute. How does the holy God record the story of a prostitute? Because he's preaching. And some of these prostitutes are his people. That's what God does. He just does amazing things because God is not like man. So, in Egypt, nine terrible plagues have come and gone. And yet Pharaoh did not let the people go. But now God has told Moses and said, one more plague and Pharaoh will set the people free. And this will be the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, even of Pharaoh, including those of the beasts. And God is tying the salvation of his people to not just death, but to the death of a person, to the death of the firstborn. Because many are aware of the Passover, but they have not been able to make the connection between the exodus of God's people and the death of the firstborn of Egypt. So God is preaching the matter of representation, the matter of substitution, 
to say, freedom, salvation from sin, from condemnation, from death is going to come only at the death of the God-appointed substitute who happens to be the firstborn son. And that tells you, without any doubt, that Pharaoh was a type of God the Father, whose son, the firstborn son of God Christ Jesus, must die that God's people may be set free. Also, tied to the death of the firstborn was the institution of the feast of the Passover. And that gives us another vantage point In other words, a different angle of the same matter, how to look at the same situation, but in a different way. And God has given Moses and Israel very explicit instructions as to how it was going to happen and how they were to eat it, because that is how it has to happen if salvation has to happen. God has set all the terms of salvation. And he also has fulfilled all those terms of salvation. So, God is he who spells out the conditions of salvation. We do not know what it takes for one to be saved. That is God's business. Okay, So God comes to Israel and says, they were to get a one-year-old lamp or God according to the number of their families, according to each man's need. That's what the text says. According to each man's need. And I'm glad that God has given us a lamb that answers to all our needs according to each man's need of sin. God has given Christ. So Christ is sufficient for every need that we have of salvation, according to each man's need, it doesn't matter what kind of sin you're dealing with, Christ is fit for every need of your salvation. Christ, in other words, is not going to save you 90% and leave you with the 10%. He's not going to save you 99% and leave you with the 1%. He has given himself according to every man's need. That's wonderful stuff. But they were to get a lamb or got one year old. And the Bible says young. And keep it for four days with them in the house. Before they killed it. From the 10th of Nisan to the 14th. So that's four days with the lamb. So that they may be acquainted with it. Get to know it better. And then the whole assembly were to participate in the killing of it. This word becomes interesting. God says, oh, the whole assembly of Israel are to participate in the killing of the lamb. First, again, I need to speak to the keeping of the lamb for four days. It was for them to get to know it. Which I think was a very strange instruction. But that it was that they may be acquainted with the Christ who was going to die with them, uh, who was going to die for them. The time 
that they were spending with the lamb before they killed it was a picture of the time that the Lord Jesus was going to spend in Palestine before he was put on the cross. They were not just going to go to the pen and grab one and kill it. Because if that were the case, the Lord Jesus would have been killed by Herod. Remember, Herod was seeking to kill Jesus. So Jesus still had to be around till he was about 33 years old before he could be crucified. So that's the time. And by the whole assembly of Israel participating in the killing of the lamp, they were imputing their sins to the substitute, as it were. They were in union with the death of the lamp. Every one of them was participating. And so we also have participated in the killing of Christ, in the death of Christ. We have participated by union with him. Even as he died, he died with us. Even as we participated in his death and resurrection. So when you read the Gospels, you're going to see that the whole of Israel were gathered together against the Lord Jesus. And they said, when speaking to Pilate, because Pilate was going to release Barabbas to them. They were, sorry, Pilate was going to release Jesus to them. Because Pilate said, I do not see anything that he has done that is wrong. But the people said, no, we do not want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And this Jesus, what do I do with him? And the people said, put him to death. Crucify him, crucify him. And many only see the hatred in the people of Israel towards Jesus. But they miss the point of what they're saying. God is he who was causing them to say that. God is behind it. He is the one saying through them, what do you do with the Lamb of God on the Passover? Because Jesus died on the Passover as the Passover Lamb of God. What do you do with him? You crucify him. Crucify him. Because that's what the lamb was given to do. It was given to be killed by the whole congregation. And not for opening a petting zoo to pet it and admire its cuteness. Because now, <laughs> in our time, people will be opening a petting zoo for lambs on the Passover. And God says, no. Lambs are for killing on the Passover. They are not for petting. So crucify him. Crucify him is Passover language. That is what happens on the Passover. Death happens on the Passover. You kill the lamb. You do not pet it. You kill the son of God because that's why he came to die for the sins of the people. That's the connection. But God says the lamb was to be without blemish. And that means undefiled. And it was a picture of the Lord Jesus 
in whom there was no sin. And that is what qualified him to be our sin bearer as both sacrifice and high priest. But then God says they were to slaughter the lamp at twilight, which also is an appointed time for the Lord Jesus' death, because the Lord Jesus died later in the day, even though they put him on the cross at midday. Okay? And a God-given sacrifice was always given for the remission of sin, for the cancellation of sin for whom it was given. And they were to take some of the blood and put it on the door lentils and the two doorposts. They were to roast the lamb with fire and not boil or stew it. No recipes were allowed in this business because many, as we know, the children of men would pressure cook it. Like Ella would, for sure. Pressure cook it to save time. Add some garlic and onions. In other words, mixing things and messing up God's work. That's the issue. That's why God said, no recipes here. It's going to be very straightforward. You're just going to roast this thing over fire. They were to eat it roasted with fire as something that had gone through death, as something that had gone through suffering, gone through God's fiery judgment. And also, they were to eat with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they were to leave none overnight. The Christ was crucified and he was taken down from the cross the very day that he died. That's what God was saying, that you are not to live any overnight. Because he accomplished salvation in the day that he was offered. Okay, so Jesus is not trying to save people. He has already saved his people. And they were to have bitter herbs, as I indicated these were probably speaking to the offense of the gospel. To say every time you bring the truth of Christ to people who are unconverted, it's a sour message. The gospel is a sour message. It's bitter. Christ is the rock of offense. That's the connection, I think. So the Lord Jesus is he who was in the picture of the firstborn of Egypt especially of Pharaoh, as we shall develop some more in the messages to come from next chapter of Exodus 13. But he also was the Passover lamb, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, where he said, Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed. Okay? So God continued with the instructions and said, that very night, he was going to pass through Egypt and bring judgment on Egypt and their gods. But he was going to pass over the children of Israel. He was going to pass over them so as not to destroy them. 
And what was the reason for that? Because he said he would see the blood. God said, I will see the blood. And that tells you the condition of being passed over by God's judgment. It has nothing to do with what you do. It is all about the blood of the Passover lamb. That, that's what makes the difference. Why were the children of Israel passed over by God's judgment? Because that's a very good question to ask and answer. Why were they passed over and not the Egyptians? Were they more righteous than the Egyptians? No, they were not. Had they repented more than the Egyptians? No, they had not repented. Were, were they not worshipping the same idols as did the Egyptians? Yes, they were. The children of Israel were worshipping the same false gods as the Egyptians. Another question. Were they not sinners just as the rest? Yes, they were. And yet, God did not bring judgment on them. So who made them to differ in the matter of salvation? It is God. It is election. And that is grace. And that is being justified. And God justifies a sinner freely, apart from the works of the law, apart from their own goodness. And that is the gospel declaration. This is what the Passover message is all about. The justification of a sinner by the blood of another. The setting free of a sinner from judgment by the, the shedding of blood of another. And not just any other, but Christ Jesus. And the children of Israel were to eat this Passover meal in the houses that had the blood on them. That was the other instruction. And the house that has the blood of Christ on it is the New Testament. It is not the house of Moses. The house of Moses has the blood of bulls and goats that will never take away sin. Okay, so a house is a dwelling place. So the New Testament in the blood of Christ is the dwelling place for God's people and all who dwell in this house have passed over or have passed from death unto life and shall not come into the judgment. The ones who dwell in this house that is covered by the blood of Christ have passed from death unto life and shall not come into the judgment. So when you die in Christ, you are not going to God for judgment. Both judgment has already happened in Christ Jesus. Okay? So in this night, in this night, if one had a weak bladder, <laughs> They had to pee on themselves because if they went outside, 
when God was passing through in judgment to relieve of themselves, they were out of coverage. They were out of coverage of the blood that protected them. This is the same theology, the same teaching of the city of refuge. You had to remain in the city of refuge or else if you were caught by the avenger of blood, you are in serious trouble. So in this night, you could not go outside. You had to remain. So yes, we sin and pee on ourselves even in that house of Christ because of sin even under the New Testament. But the key thing is that we are still in the house that is covered by the blood that God sees. We are still covered. We are still covered. The issue here is what blood is there on your door? One cannot afford to get out of this covenant that is in the blood of Christ and try the covenant of the law. But those are two different houses. The house of Moses is not the same house as the house of Jesus. There's no protection of a sinner by law. If you go back to law, the law does not have enough blood to cover you from God's judgment. This is why we make the distinction between law and gospel. The law does not give you blood to cover you from God's judgment. That is why Paul said to the Galatians, in Galatians 5, verse 1 to 4, I'm just going to read through. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to Egypt. That's what Paul is saying. The yoke of slavery is coming from Egypt. And God is relating that to those who are under the law and saying the law is a yoke of slavery. It's a yoke of bondage. Stand fast in the liberty that God has set you free. You see, that is all Exodus language. You have been set free by God. So stand in that liberty. Don't go back to slaving again in Egypt. Indeed, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Once you do one aspect of the law to try and be justified by God, then you are a debtor to the whole law, not just to the one commandment, but to the 613 commandments of the law. You have to do them 100% well. Okay? So Paul says, once you go back to the law, you have become a debtor to the whole thing. You have become estranged from Christ. You have been severed. You have been separated from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Okay? So if you go back to the law and try to clean yourself up, but that's the reason why people want to go to law. They are trying to clean themselves up. Just a little bit more cleaning, 
<laughs> so they stepped out of the house of Jesus because you cannot go back to the law without stepping out of the house of Jesus. Without stepping out of the city of refuge because the city of refuge is a picture of the house of Jesus. Is a picture of the New Testament. That's where you are safe. Once you go out, you step out, you lose your coverage, you lose your protection. And God says, Christ will profit you zero, nothing. So the Passover lamb, Christ Jesus, and his death is the condition of your salvation before God. Okay, that's clear. So anyone who is playing tricks of conditioning salvation on anything that you do is telling a lie on Christ and are deceived and are deceiving you. Because if the Christ has died, we are going to hear something from God. We are going to hear something like Hebrews 10, 14 that says, For by a single offering, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are the sanctified by his single offering of himself. Christ perfected. That's what he did. He perfected for all time the sanctified. So there's no more need of me to be perfected. I am already perfected by what Christ did. It doesn't matter what some other person says. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what God says. So to go against this is to make God a liar and Jesus a loser. Okay? So this feast, the Passover feast, became central to the life and religion of Israel. But it was not alone. It was tied to yet another important feast that relates to the person of Christ and salvation. So God introduced another feast and tied it to the Passover. Verse 15 of Exodus 12. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. The Passover feast was only one day long, but it was immediately followed the very next day by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which ran for seven days. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread began with a Sabbath, with a resting day. And the last day also ended with the Sabbath. And that means in the week that the Lord Jesus died as the Passover lamb, there were more than one Sabbath. There were more than one Sabbath. John 19.31. This is a text that a lot of the church world don't like because it destroys all their traditions. John 19.31. John says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day 
that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And then in parenthesis he says, for that Sabbath was a high day or a special Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The high day that John is speaking to is the special Sabbath that came by way of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that means the Lord Jesus did not die on Friday. Jesus did not die on Friday. Because when people see Sabbath, immediately they think of Saturday. But because this was the Passover, and the next day of the Passover always began with the Sabbath. So in the week that Jesus died, there were two Sabbaths. Okay, there were two Sabbaths. And also that means there were two preparation days in that week. Okay? So the regular Sabbath, which is the Saturday Sabbath, and then the Sabbath that was due to the unleavened bread feast. Okay? So the tradition of Jesus dying on Friday came from man who did not understand the feasts of God and how they related to the Lord Jesus. And so they easily settled for a Friday death. But there's no way that Jesus would die on Friday and resurrect on Sunday morning. Because Jesus said the sign that he was the Messiah was three days and three nights. He said, according to the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, that's going to be my sign. So if you have Jesus dying on Friday and he's taken off the cross at 6 p.m., how do you have three days and three nights? Because when the women got to the, to the grave, to the tomb of Jesus, he was already risen. So at the very most, Jesus only had one day and one and a half nights, maybe one night. It's not going to work. So John 19.31 is key because it tells you that there were two Sabbaths because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so let's keep talking to the significance of that. There had to be two Sabbaths in the week that Jesus died. The regular Sabbath was a creation ordinance Sabbath because God rested from his works. That is the regular Saturday Sabbath. And the second Sabbath that was ushered in by the death of Christ was a redemptive Sabbath. It was a salvation Sabbath. To say, now that Jesus has died, another rest has come for God's people. So there is a transition of the old Sabbath, of the law, to the new Sabbath, by the death of Christ, which the law itself was already preaching. The law itself was already preaching the new Sabbath that was going to come by Christ. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. 
Deuteronomy 5, 12-15. Moses said, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And now verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. The outstretched arm is the hand of Christ on the cross. That is what brought rest. That's what brought the exodus of God's people from their slavery to sin. The outstretched hand of Jesus. That is the mighty hand that brings out of slavery. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the transition has happened from the Sabbath as a creation ordinance and God tying it to salvation. So God changed or added to the focus of the Sabbath from creation to their salvation from the slavery of Egypt. Now, the Sabbath, see this, see this. The Sabbath is tied. Rest is now tied to the Passover. Rest is now tied to the Passover and the unleavened bread tied to Christ. Rest is now tied to Christ Jesus, who is the Passover, and also the unleavened bread, the God-given bread from heaven, and what God accomplished for his people by these things. So God said, you are to eat unleavened bread in the seven days, and they were to remove all yeast from their homes. Now, that is a new thing. What is yeast? have anything to do with anything, especially salvation. Are you going to go to heaven because you don't have yeast in your house? This is something that we use to bake bread. God says, no, remove yeast from your houses because if you eat bread with yeast, you are so dead. You will be cut off from Israel. You will die you will be condemned. That is a threat of condemnation. Hear this, verse 16, going back to Exodus. Exodus 12. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. The holy convocation is Sabbath. No man of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. First day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread 
as I said, was a Sabbath, and that means um, the people were to rest. And so was the seventh day, as I said already. And in addition to not having yeast in their homes and eating unleavened bread, no manner of work was to be done, which means it was a time of rest and whatever they had to eat, it had to be that which they had prepared themselves. In other words, they could not go to the nearest McDonald's drive-thru because if they did, they could only get some gluten-free bread and double cheese, beggar, quarter pound, which is Big Mac with a special Mac sauce. Well, I used to work at McDonald's, so I know this stuff. <laughs> God says, no, you're not going to get your food from McDonald's. You need to eat the unleavened bread for your salvation. You have to eat unleavened bread, not gluten-free, but unleavened bread. And since God was very serious about this feast, because he threatened to kill people, he continued the instruction and said, verse 17, so you shall observe, so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your enemies, sorry, sorry, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Now God gives the theological reasons why they were to observe it. He tied the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to their redemption from the land of Egypt. And this is where the transition happened in the theological understanding of the Sabbath, tying the Sabbath to redemption, to salvation. So you see that the Passover and unleavened bread were inseparable feasts. So that if someone said the Passover, they always assumed the unleavened. If they said unleavened, they assumed the Passover because they happened one after the other. They were always connected. Okay, They were pretty much joined to the hip in the history of redemption because they are speaking or they were speaking to the same person. They're speaking to the same person and to the same work, and that is the Lord Jesus. So the Passover spoke to the death of Christ, the shedding of blood for the remission of sin, and this Christ was also in the unleavened bread, being the bread from heaven, the bread that was made without yeast, being the sinless man. Christ Jesus was sinless man, yet God, the fullness of God in him, and that is the significance or was the significance of taking out the yeast that God commanded the children of Israel and said, you're going to have to take out the yeast from your homes. And God does not and will not tolerate any amount of sin in respect of salvation. 
And with respect to yeast, he said, if any person is found with yeast or eats bread with yeast, they would be condemned. And that means only the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, is the condition of your salvation. There's no amount of progressive sanctification that can remove the yeast of sin from you. The gospel of law plus grace is a false gospel because it introduces a lot of yeast through your own sin. Only the gospel of Christ apart from the law, a righteousness apart from the law says we are without blemish and we are above reproach and that means only through Christ does God see you with no yeast in your home. Only through Jesus does God see you, look at you and say, oh, there's no yeast in him or her. Only through Christ. Otherwise, it is yeast everywhere. From the pulpits to the pews, it's all yeast. Everyone is trying to ferment Jesus. <laughs> Don't ferment Jesus. But what happens when the Christ has been given as the Passover? What follows immediately? What are we to understand about what Jesus did for us in respect of salvation? A Sabbath follows. Rest follows. God is saying, rest because you have been accepted by me. None of your sins will condemn you before me. Don't try to impress me. I am impressed already by what Jesus did. Rest. That is gospel preaching. If we are not preaching the sacrifice of Christ and the rest that immediately follows, we are not telling the truth. And much of what is called gospel preaching is having people gathering more yeast and hiding it in their homes. There's just a lot of yeast. <laughs> and yet, rest is God's message in Christ. Rest and more rest. Lazy boy theology. This becomes very important. These messages may seem like they're long, but I'm going for something even bigger than just for people to hear something encouraging on a Sunday. I'm talking about the time that we shall approach death. Because I believe that at that time we are so weak and pretty much by yourself. And the most important thing that you need to know is that God has accepted you. Because now the time to leave this place has come. Where are you going? You're going with what? With a bag full of yeast? Or you want to go with the assurance of rest? Assurance of being accepted by God. That's my point. That's what God is teaching. This is proper gospel understanding. It has nothing to do with money. About your best life now and all those things. Those don't answer to the things that God is talking about. Okay? Verse 18 to 20. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. 
For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Wow, so much repetition. Why so much repetition? God is so emphatic about this matter of leaven and unleavened bread. It means it's serious. He says you shall only eat unleavened bread. And do you think he was trying to help people from being gassy? No. And do you think that his concern was just yeast? No. These were only pictures of something more important. His concern was the purity and simplicity and sufficiency of Christ to serve his people. And he is saying, do not adulterate my gospel by adding things to it. Do not add things to it. His concern was that the message of his gospel speaks to his holiness and righteousness and the satisfaction of our sin by that which is blameless and which satisfied him with no conditions to be fulfilled by sinners. Okay, so God is making a lot of noise about this because it respects Christ Jesus. That's why it's important. You must eat unleavened bread to see the kingdom of God. And that means you must believe in Christ Jesus, not in Mohammed, not in anybody else. It doesn't matter how good if you are to see the kingdom of God, you must eat Christ Jesus. That's why the Jews were offended. And he said, well, if you're going to live, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And that is the unleavened bread. That is Christ. And Christ saying, I am the one who causes salvation. That's why God is making a lot of emphasis on the matter of unleavened bread. He's talking about Jesus. Hear this again. Verse 19. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. So this ordinance applied to both the stranger or native of the land and they were to be cut off from the congregation of Israel if they ate what was leavened. And the stranger who is in view is the Lord Jesus. The stranger, hear me someone again. The stranger who is in view is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was the man from heaven. He was a spirit man from heaven. And thus was a stranger. He was a stranger when he came to Palestine. And God says, if Jesus should eat unleavened bread, 
he shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. He was to be cut off from the land of the living if he ate anything that was leavened. Remember, the children of Israel were to put out all their yeast in their homes. They were not to have any yeast in their homes. And yet Jesus was cut off. Christ was crucified. But that's what the cutting off is. Christ Jesus was cut off by God. Why? Because yeast was found not in his person, but in the company of those that belonged to him. Those that he represented, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, they are the ones who had the yeast that caused the death of Christ. That caused the stranger, Christ Jesus, to die. This was his house. The house, the body of Christ, was found with yeast. Because remember, yeast is a picture of sin. There was no sin in Christ Jesus. But in his house, there were sinners. The house belongs to Jesus. So yeast was found in the house of Christ, and so he was cut off on account of his people. So Isaiah says, in Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. For the yeast of my people. <laughs> For the yeast, the issue is yeast, is sin. That's why he died. For his people, yeast was found in the house of Christ because of his people and it got to him by the imputation of our sin and that is why he was cut off. So these feasts were not about Israel. They were about Christ. And the Lord Jesus would have this to say. Let's go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. I'm going to read through. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But to be, beware, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus was not talking about the physical bread, just as God was not talking about the physical bread in Exodus 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread itself, 
but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Lord says, the yeast is also to be found in the doctrine, in the teaching. And what was wrong with the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees were feigned law keepers. They prided themselves and trusted in themselves that they were righteous by their law keeping and despised others. Okay? And Jesus says, that is leaven. Watch out for it. Be careful of the law keepers. That's what Jesus is saying. Watch out for the law keepers. Beware of the doctrine of those who claim to keep the law. As represented by the Pharisees. And what was wrong with the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the sect that denied the resurrection of the dead. Which was key to the vindication of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. And the Sadducees said, no, there's no resurrection. Okay? So the law said 11. Obviously something that the Jews were very familiar with because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But don't miss the point that the idea of leaven is something very small. But that produces a great influence. You put a little bit of baking soda, you put a little bit of yeast, just a little bit, and yet it raises the whole dough to bread. Just a little bit. And the Pharisees got a lot of things right, theology-wise. They understood sovereignty. They understood election as Israelites and Jews. But that small amount of leaven in their teaching of law-keeping and righteousness put them at odds with Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And it was serious enough, according to Jesus, for him to say, be aware of them. <laughs> Beware of the teaching of these people because it's dangerous. So yeast or leaven had three levels of theological understanding and significance. Number one, the sinlessness of the crucified Christ. Christ had no yeast in himself, so he was not a sinner. Number two, the death of Christ due to our sin, the leaven that was found is in his own house, the church. So Christ came to deal with the leaven that was found in his own house, and so he was cut off because of our own leaven. Number three, doctrine. Doctrine that adds any condition of salvation to the doing of the sinner is loaded with leaven. Doctrine that adds Moses back to Christ is loaded with leaven. And you know, when you're backing, if you've Add bread that is too much yeast. You can't even eat more than one slice. You can't eat. If someone puts three tablespoons of yeast in there, it's not going to be good. It does not taste good. Okay? So Jesus says, be aware of it. So a lot of people who may even 
identify themselves as sovereign grace also come and say a lot of correct things about God and Christ. But when it comes to the real issue of dealing with yeast, they will add law. They will add works to grace. And that is the leaven of the Pharisees. And the Lord did not like it. Verse 21 to 23 of Exodus 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So again, it is God who sees the blood, not ourselves. In other words, we are not the judges of salvation. Because many see what they think or want to be the blood of the Passover lamp. That is not the blood that God actually sees. God has only one kind of blood that he sees. The blood of the Passover is seen by God alone and is evidenced in those who are saved by faith in that blood. Because for Israel, they couldn't see the blood in the darkness of the night, but God saw it. And even now, we can't see it literally because this happened 2,000 years ago. This is not saying God has blood sprinkled on our foreheads like here and now. No, that's not what that's saying. <laughs> Just a picture. But through faith, we behold of that blood. And faith in the blood cannot be duplicated because it is impossible by man. It is impossible for man to believe in the blood of Christ. Okay? It cannot be duplicated. What man can duplicate, can fake, is novel gazing and works in the name of the blood. Okay? Any religious person can duplicate novel gazing and some show of religious piety. But to stand alone on the blood of Christ and say, that is enough for my salvation, that alone is caused by God. So God did not call us to be blood inspectors like we work for the Red Cross, but to believe in making our election and calling sure. Okay, 24 to 27, Exodus chapter 12. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the Passover was to be remembered and celebrated by the children of Israel 
as an everlasting ordinance. And again, God made the theological interpretation for its significance and said it is because of the justification of Israel from God's judgment, which they deserved, by the way. God essentially had judged Israel in that which they had killed as we have been judged already in the death of Christ. So the lamb became the victim on their behalf and they were to remember that this is how they had been delivered, passed over from their Egyptian slavery experience. So how were you saved? People say, oh, because I chose Jesus. (laughs) I decided. I got baptized. Then I sang in the choir. I've been in the ministry for 25 years, 30 years, 50 years. That has nothing to do with salvation. It does not cause salvation. What did God say to remember? You remember the Passover name. What did Jesus say to remember? He says, remember my death. As often as you do this, you remember my death till I come. Remember the death of the Passover lamb. Okay, so the Passover is related to the deliverance from the slavery of sin and God's judgment of it. And so the people bowed their heads and worshipped God because that's a very good grounds for us to bow our heads and worship God for the salvation that is given us. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So that was verse 28, verse 29 and 30, the death of the firstborn. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So at midnight, God poured his judgment on Egypt and killed all the firstborn, including the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, again signifying the death of the firstborn of God, who is Christ, the preeminent one. So what happened after this? As soon as the firstborn of Pharaoh had died, had been struck by God, as Christ was struck, smitten of God, Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt rose in the night in great distress. And I'm wondering how they knew that their firstborn had died. Were they sleeping with them? They didn't have cribs as we have them now, I don't think. But somehow everybody knew that their firstborn had died. Because God did not tell us the manner of the plague whether it was some COVID or what, whatever plague he brought, we don't know. But it was such that they all woke up to this devastation as it happened in the night and there was no Egyptian house that was spared 
of the calamity. Now, to the Exodus verse 31 to 32. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, That is Pharaoh. Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go save the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your heads as ye have said, and be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh just had this thing of saying some crazy thing. And bless me also. Can you pray for me, Moses? So Pharaoh immediately called for Moses and Aaron by night. He knew where they lived and told them to pack up and leave town and to take everything with them. And says, now you go and serve the Lord as you have said. And that tells us the reason why God has redeemed us. He has saved us that we may serve him. Okay, verse 33. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. We are so dead. Get these people out. So they were urging all the people to help Israel to get out. Give them whatever they want. Just get them out of here. (laughs) Okay. Because Israel became... To them, like the smell of death unto death. But to Israel, the smell of life to life. Israel was experiencing life, whilst Egypt was experiencing death. That's the distinction. And God was the difference maker. Verse 34. So the people took their door before it was leavened. Uh, having their knitting bows bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. So the knitting bows were the container for mixing the flour, water, and oil to make the dough that would then be bagged. And in the kneading, bow pressure was applied by hands or feet. Okay, hopefully their feet were clean. <laughs> if it was mass production... They would mix it with feet. Actually, I think I see a lot of people in the Middle East, they still do that. They mix it with feet. Okay? Some good eating. (laughs) Pressure is being applied in the mixing of the flour and the water and the oil. And that being the picture of Christ, the unleavened dough. Okay? He's going to have to go through some pressure. To accomplish our salvation. He's going to have to go through some suffering. He has to go through the fire. Christ the man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Being stabbed on. Being mixed right there in the kneading bowl. Okay. And from there to the fire. And when he gets to the fire. Salvation has happened. Verse 35 and 36. That tells you we are almost done. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they'd asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they planted the Egyptians. The text says, the children of Israel had done according 
to the word of Moses. If you read these things too quickly, you'll never get it. They had asked the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, and clothing as God had told them they should ask. He told them what to ask for. They were asking for things according to God's will for them. That's what God had told them to ask for. Silver, gold, and clothing. They had asked for precious and valuable things. And even clothing. Because those are the matters that really are important to God. They're valuable things. And this is what Moses had asked them to do. Because God had told Moses and commanded this. Why did God command for them to get articles of silver and gold and clothing? He didn't ask for their flip-flops. <laughs> flip-flops and... What, what, what's the other shoes that you buy from Walmart? Those cheap ones, plastic ones? The Crocs, yeah. <laughs> God did not ask them to get Crocs from the Egyptians. <laughs> but the question is why? Why does God command Israel to get these particular items from them? Because God is preaching. Because those who are in slavery to sin and have been redeemed of the Lamb of God, leave their place of slavery in riches. They live with gold and silver. Gold and silver are metals, precious metals, that do not rust. To say the riches of salvation in Christ do not rust. That's what we leave this place of our slavery with. Gold, silver, and clothing. But what is the clothing? There are no fitting rooms right here. <laughs> there are no fitting rooms. Just grab what you can grab from your neighbor. Hopefully it fits along the way. But what is the clothing? It was the righteousness of Christ. There's none who has been redeemed of Christ who participates in the true and final exodus of God's people who lives without clothing. Clothing that was freely given them by the Egyptians, but they were not given by the Egyptians. It is God who gave them the clothes because he said he would grant People favor in the sight of the Egyptians for them to get these particular things to get what he was going to have them request because they spoke to Christ. So it's God who gave them those things through the Egyptians. And now to the matter of plundering, the children of Israel plundered the Egyptians. And it is not Negative as we may think. 
if you're plundering in, the, in that context, it means a super abundance on behalf of God's people. They left Egypt with a ton of stuff. If they could hook up trailers and stuff, they would be hauling out a lot of things. But it was anticipating, the plundering was anticipating the abundance and riches that Christ would bring. That's the plundering. That's the idea. God's people plundered the Egyptians. They left with a lot of riches. Because all those who are in Christ will leave this planet with the riches of Christ. And that's why in John 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life. And that they may have it more abundantly. So the plundering is speaking to abundance. The redeemed of the Lord have life abundant. They have riches abundant, but in heaven. This is not gospel preaching. So this is not a prosperity gospel preaching. The name it and claim it teaching that is so common, common and popular in many of the so-called churches. That's not the prosperity. God's people here now still run out of money. They still face trouble. But the consolation is that God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's pay attention to the text again, verse 35. And by the way, we are finishing in verse 39. Okay, so we are almost there. Verse 35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and color them. What is that saying? Remember, Moses represents the testimony or function of the law in the gospel. And the law tells us what we should get from Christ. If we should see him, silver, gold, and clothing. Because God has granted us favor to get them from him, not from the law. The children of Israel listened to what Moses told them. That is how to understand Moses correctly. That is how to understand the law correctly. That is how we establish the law through faith. That the blessing comes to us in Christ, not in the law itself. The law testifies of the riches of Christ. It testifies of the righteousness of Christ. And if we are listening to Moses, we go to Christ for all of our blessing. That is why 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, says, But to us, Christ has become to us. Christ has become to us. Wisdom from God. Righteousness. Sanctification. Redemption. That's the testament of the law. Look to Christ. That's where the riches are. Do not look to Moses. 
hear Moses. But when you hear Moses correctly, you run to Jesus. You don't go to Jesus and then run back to Moses. No, no. That's false teaching. Verse 37 to 39, those are our last verses. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sakoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and heads, a great deal of livestock. And they begged unleavened, unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So on their exodus from Egypt, the children of Israel begged unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. They had been driven out and could not wait. It was an emergence exit. Because if we are getting out of Egypt and are participating in the Exodus, then we ought to be eating the unleavened bread from heaven. And the text says they had not prepared provisions for themselves. We have paid attention to that. They had not prepared provisions for themselves. And that means their sufficiency during their exodus was in the unleavened bread. They had not prepared provisions for themselves. Because the sinner who has been redeemed of Christ has not prepared any provisions of righteousness for themselves. <laughs> they eat the unleavened bread. They rely in their exodus to God. They rely completely on the unleavened bread, on the gospel of God's grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what that is saying. The redeemed of the Lord have not prepared any other righteousness for themselves because there's a teaching that the believer also has some other righteousness. Some call it the personal righteousness that comes from progressive sanctification. And God says, no, these of God's people had not prepared anything for themselves. They ate the unleavened bread. So the sinner comes to Christ with nothing and finds all their sufficiency in what he has done, what he has prepared for them, the food, the articles of silver, the gold, and the clothing, and that to say Christ is all. And in conclusion, this is what I believe God would have us to understand about what we have learned from Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 12. That sin and law work together to produce enslavement, bondage. And in this state, the sinner cannot help themselves out. We can't deliver ourselves 
We can't save ourselves. And so, God preached this truth through Israel for 430 years in their slavery in Egypt. He brought them under slavery through Pharaoh. God is the one who did it. And God's major point then was to show how such a people will be set free and be justified before him. Because sin did not start in Egypt, but in the garden of Eden with Adam. But God is just using Egypt as a picture of the issues and how he determined to resolve them for us. And his resolution to the matter of our sin is not in our running, our willing, or in our effort. It is in God who shows mercy by providing the way of escape, which is by the giving of the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the only condition by his shed blood for us to be delivered from the hands of Pharaoh, from the hands of God, from the slavery of sin and his judgment, the blood of Christ. God is very wrathful beyond our imagination. God is more ruthless than Pharaoh. So you have to appreciate that about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is only a very watered down picture of God. Okay? The real God that we have to deal with is amazing. <laughs> His wrath is beyond our imagination. And so the gospel is saying we have been set free from God's own condemnation as Israel was set free from Pharaoh's hand by the blood of the Lamb. It is an event that already happened and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who are covered by his blood. But as we say, Jen, we continue to eat the unleavened bread, bread without yeast, the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. God does not hear your message just because you meet on Sunday or that you just call yourself a Christian. There's a doctrine to it. There's a doctrine that relates to what he has done. Jesus said it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? And do not worry about not having prepared enough righteousness for your exodus. Because we think about what things have happened in our lives that we can remember as far back as we can remember. Things that come to haunt us once in a while. And then you're thinking, that particular sin, that particular sin, I don't know. Maybe God has forgiven me of some sins, but this particular one, I am not really sure. But God says, do not worry about what you have to eat. What you have to prepare and whether you have prepared enough for your exodus to meet with him. The Lord Jesus is enough. 
He has made enough provisions for us to see us through to Beola land, to the shores of heaven. So be of good cheer. God sees the blood and he has passed over us. And so we can sing happily, it is well with my soul. (laughs) It is well with my soul. I have my articles of silver and gold from Egypt and also my clothing. I have my unleavened bread with me and so everything is good. May the name of Christ be blessed always by God's people. Amen. We are done. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Israel in Egypt and how you set them free by the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh, picturing the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for setting them free and us by the death of the Passover lamb, the death of Christ and his blood, the blood that you see. We thank you for the unleavened bread that is Christ Jesus, the bread without yeast. We thank you, Lord, that yeast was found in our homes, and yet Christ came and removed it for us by his death. So now we are holy and clean. We are justified. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We honor you for your people. We honor you for this message. May you cause the many who are far and wide to come and hear the truth of this message. May you be with us in our going in and out. We pray and thank you. No things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. God bless you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and don't eat bread with yeast. Too much yeast out there, especially on Sundays. (laughs) Lord of mercy.